writers, this is Susanna Daniel with the Writer's Toolkit podcast, where we use original material from working writers to talk about craft and creativity. Here's the third chapter of my novel in progress, Batter Sea. When we, left, when we last left Barton Callahan, he'd fallen into a sinkhole that opened up in the tropical hardwood next to his home while he was hiding from his warring teenage daughters, Eva and Marie. We'll be answering your questions, so please leave um, a voicemail on 608-455-6288, and you might be featured in an upcoming episode. Chapter 3. There was a stretch in the seconds after he fell, when Barton thought that the falling might go on and on, that his house and his girls and his little sandbar of a neighborhood would be sucked down, and at some point he would stop fighting and let go, like a person drowning within sight of the shore. But the hole stopped growing seconds after it opened. Barton fell as much forward onto his stomach as down into the crater. A minute later, he had hauled himself out and was standing on what felt like solid ground. Kate kept glancing at his face as she followed him to the hole, squinting at him. When they reached it, he put a hand on her elbow to stop her from stepping too close. The hole was roughly the length of his Cadillac sedan, maybe a little deeper. I was standing here, he waved a hand, and then the ground was gone. My God, said Kate, a sinkhole in our little gully. I've never seen one in real life. The word sinkhole had been tapping at a far window of Barton's mind. This happens upstate, right? He said, does this even happen here? It's the rain, said said Kate. Barton's brain fizzed. He kicked at the lip of the hole and felt a tug on the hem of his shirt, pulling him back. Then his phone was in his hand. Is this an emergency? Yes, she said, and took his phone. She explained to the dispatcher about Barton's head wound and the sinkhole and gave instructions for finding the cul-de-sac. No one ever listened. They all trusted their virtual navigators and ended up missing the narrow terrace that connected the stretch of South Miami to the rest of it, then circled the block without finding a way in. Their patch of South Miami was an island within a busy neighborhood within a major American city, an oasis. The air was electrified with a new current. Barton felt awake in a way he had not felt in a year, maybe 10. His knees buckled and he sank. There came a warm pressure against his back, Kate's palm. Would you please go get my girls, he said. Eva showed up first, Marie several steps behind. Beneath Eva's left eye was a thick smear of snow-white scar cream. Glory had once called the cream her war paint, and Murray had said that was culturally insensitive. You fell into that, Eva said to Barton. The cream rippled and her left eyelid spasmed. I'm fine, said Barton. What did it feel like, said Eva. It felt like falling. A couple seconds and it was over. What were you doing out here, said Marie. Eva groaned. Escaping, you moron. From what, said Marie. From us. Stop, barked Barton. An ambulance came up the street in a swirl of white lights, no siren, and behind it came a patrol car. A young, freckled paramedic parked Barton on the bed of the van and shined a light into his eyes. Barton didn't have a concussion and he didn't need stitches, she determined, but she didn't like his blood pressure. 
The officer, a tall, big-gutted black guy with a soft voice and a wisp of a mustache, mustache, said, third one this month. Hardly an epidemic, said Kate. Should we expect more, said Barton? The officer shrugged. Probably? Roger showed up then, followed by Stuart Mendez and his wife Margot, who circled the sinkhole, clucked her tongue, gave Barton a sympathetic smile, then tugged on Stuart and said goodnight. Barton told the girls to go back inside. They did nothing good for his blood pressure. The officer made a call, then said that a jurisdictional hydrologist, this was a term Barton had never heard, would stop by in the morning. Roger clapped Barton's shoulder and said, glad you didn't get swallowed up, man. He did get swallowed up, said Kate to her husband. Her front teeth, slightly crooked, shined in the bluish ambulance light. Her copious curly hair caught and contained the light like a broken halo. Glory had always said these Kate and Roger were an odd couple. What's their glue, she had said. Do they even have one thing in common? They talk to us, but they don't talk to each other. Have you noticed? He interrupts her too, and she just shuts up. The kids need something, and they take care of. It. she takes care of it every time he doesn't even look up. Didn't he, Barton, find them strange and bewildering, and didn't he think they were doomed? This all was, Barton realized now, as his neighbors stood protectively beside him and a warm rain pattered against the roof of the ambulance. Unkind of glory. Not to mention judgmental. And look who's doomed now, babe. Who knows what happens in the shadowy nooks of a twosome. They might spend evenings in the shabby farmhouse giggling together, or taking turns at a crossword, or shoving each other, or ignoring each other. Roger launched into a monologue about a sinkhole that opened in Tampa Bay under a home, taking down an entire king-size bedroom set, including the napping homeowner. The last the man's wife had seen of him was one foot sinking into the earth. They all looked uneasily at the ground beneath their feet. After a few minutes, the paramedic cleared Barton and drove away, leaving the three of them standing in the rain. Enough excitement, said Kate. Stay upright, please. She squeezed Barton's forearm. I'll try. Roger gave him a wave. They might go, in, they might go inside and make love to each other. They might draw caricatures of each other or read poems aloud or do the dishes together, standing side by side at the sink. Barton walked unsteadily toward his own house and up his porch steps. He picked up the six-pack left by Stuart. In the bright glare of his empty kitchen, he drank a glass of water. The girls, Marie probably, had swept up whatever Eva had broken. He squinted through the picture window at the dark cemetery. In his mind, the sinkhole dilated like an oil slick. It reached the edge of his property. It devoured his lawn. He went down to the hall, down the hallway to the girls' rooms. He knocked on Marie's door first. She lay on top of the covers with her clothes on, one arm over her face. Barton went to turn off her lamp, but she said, leave it, without moving. Her forearm was covered in fine, dark hair. It's late, he said. Kiss, she said. He bent to kiss her warm forehead. Her breathing was shallow. She was waiting for him to leave so she could cry or resume crying. Glory had been staunch about not pushing the girls to confess their griefs, but how often had he walked into a room to find one or the other, sometimes both, unspooling a thread of woe, while Glory murmured consolingly. 
She was calm and let them cry, but also brought them back to themselves. Could Barton do this? Wasn't it sorcery? Sweetheart, Marie, he said. I'm fine. She took a deep breath. She kept her eyes covered. I'm sorry you fell into the ground. What a long night it had been, but what had happened really? His girls had fought, nothing new, and he'd scraped his forehead. I don't understand what's going on with you and your sister, he said. But this was not entirely true. He did understand it in a certain light at a certain angle. A year ago, they'd still had their roles. Eva was the pretty, athletic one, and Marie was the artistic introvert. Barton had never thought of them this way, stuffed into separate boxes, but it did seem as if they'd bargained with each other for their positions. You can be the great musical talent, Eva had proposed, but boys will always look past you to me. Now, Eva's face was still beautiful to him, her father, though it still made him sad and he still missed her old face. What did she look like to everyone else? No wonder her blood had come to a boil. He tried again. I want to help Marie. She shrugged. There was a shine to her forehead and her brown hair. She needed to shower. And behind one ear was nestled a lock of light pink hair that had grown an inch since she dyed it. On her chin were three pimples, one of which was very red. But the flesh of her cheeks was so supple and unmarred that a person, a father, could not look at her without being reminded that she was a child. It was very difficult to be a child, living under the weight of all that new skin and an unknowable future. Barton felt terrible for her. A tear slipped and she wiped it away. I don't think you can. Maybe mom can. I'll talk to her tomorrow. Maybe, no, don't. Just leave her alone. Barton flinched. I don't mean it that way, said Marie. It's okay. As far as he knew, Glory's affair had been going on mere weeks before, during an unholy state of the union late one Tuesday night while the girls were out with friends. She asked for a divorce. Her lover worked at the law school, which shared a common area with the bio lab where she was a technician. Not only was Glory's disclosure unwelcome to Barton, but it struck him as an unseemly amount of information that required an unviable rate of absorption. One thing at a time, he wanted to shout. One thing at a goddamn time. Eleven months later, he was still absorbing and adjusting. But the news, the fact of Glory's decision and the wake of it, hadn't yet lost all or even most of its shock quotient. Perhaps what had surprised him most, second to the announcement, was how the girls had responded. Not with anger toward Glory, but with defensiveness of her. They all seemed to treat the transition more like a career move than a personal one, as if all the years of supporting Barton as he built his car wash business had racked up currency in her account, and it was simply time to make a withdrawal. She had a right to leave, they seemed to believe, which was true, but certainly did not feel true. And despite the jump straight into Max's Coconut Grove condo, where the girls had to share a room and there was no television, and despite the fact that they were gone, when they were gone, it was so quiet and he was so lonely that he started to doubt his own existence. Despite everything, he was still somehow considered, if not the bad guy, then at least not the good one. Kiss, Marie said again, a prompt for him to stop sulking at her bedside. She replaced her arm over her eyes. Again, he pressed his lips to her hairline. The lamp over Eva's bed was also lighted, 
She was hunkered so deeply under her covers that only a lock of her hair showed. If Marie was made in Glory's image, walnut-haired and pale-skinned and easily bruised, Eva was made in his own, ruddy and fair and freckled, thick, strawberry blonde hair that would start to gray before she hit 30. Barton clicked off the lamp. No, said Eva, her voice threadbare. All that screaming. He switched the light back on. What would she do if he climbed in and stretched out beside her? What would she do if he got on his knees and begged her to stop being cruel to her sister? If he told her she was worrying a hole into his heart? He cleared his throat. What can I do for you? Do you need water? Nothing. No. Her hand, bony and girlish, came up from under the covers and reached into the air. He nearly toppled over, grasping for it. He kissed her small thumb. Good night, she said, pulling back her hand. Good night, he said. Please stop, he almost said, but he had no energy for begging. He stood in the dim hallway between the two closed doors. He felt the slipping sensation again beneath his feet, then went to rummage through Glory's part of the medicine cabinet for some kind of rejuvenating skin serum. He found a sleeping pill and took half. Then he slept badly and dreamed, predictably, of falling. He rose at first light, and in the mirror, the bags under his eyes put on display all of his anxiety and ineptitude. And then, in his robe and sandals, coffee in hand, he left the quiet house through the front door and crossed the cul-de-sac into the cemetery. He stood beside his sinkhole and felt giddy. I fell into a hole, he thought. He almost laughed out loud. Then Marie called for him from the house, and he flung his coffee and watched the liquid sink into the dirt. Chapter 4 A few weeks after Glory left, Barton started taking off work on Monday afternoons and every Friday. He used the time to wash and fold laundry, shop for groceries, catch up on bills, mow the lawn, tend his struggling fruit trees. When the girls came through the door from school, he loitered near them, probing for details about their days and states of mind. To his surprise, they adapted to his hovering and started coming to him the way they'd always come to glory, tasking him with their small but urgent predicaments, a misplaced textbook, a failed quiz, a procrastinated project now late, a schedule conflict, a social event they both agreed they would not attend but wanted to vent about anyway, a dirty shirt needed immediately, a chipped tooth, a malfunctioning metronome. Yep, you talk to them and they talk back, Glory had said glibly when he told her he felt closer to them than ever. Had he not talked to them before? There had always been somebody right there, Glory, with more cogent questions and answers, recollecting details and making connections. Though they were only with him half the time, he had them Mondays and Tuesdays and every other weekend. Almost every day brought a new plight, either logistical or emotional. Together, they faced an endless roster of appointments. Haircuts, flu shots, dental cleanings, the gynecologist for Marie, who found herself abruptly out of birth control pills for her period, Glory assured Barton. Follow-ups with Eva's surgeon and physical therapist. Two, he found himself writing an endless stream of checks, always against some critical deadline. School fundraisers, activity fees, physical therapy, piano lessons, field trips. 
Before Glory left, he had never called their school or picked up the phone to find the school on the other line. He had never met their pediatrician. She had always been the one who flexed her work schedule, always the first number on the contact form. A a thought struck him from time to time. Some people have three children. Some people have four. How? Before she left, Glory taped a schedule to the wall above Barton's desk. It had been reliable for three weeks or so, but then Marie's piano teacher doubled her practice time, and Eva started staying late at school for extra credit, and the whole thing needed revamping. Glory had left a type list of phone numbers, too, knowing he couldn't be bothered to record them in his phone. Marie's piano instructor, Eva's physical therapist, the school guidance counselor, the school college counselor, the school absent and tardy report line, Eva's two best friends' homes, Marie's piano friends' homes, the neighbors across the street and next door, two doctors and one dentist. Barton had consulted this directory more times than he could count. Once, he took the paper from the den into the kitchen for some reason, and the next time he needed it, it wasn't in its place, and he started to panic. That day, he made ten copies and placed them around the house. He put a copy in each girl's backpack just in case. And one by one, the numbers did find their ways into his cell phone, and eventually, he threw the papers away. And so, the rituals of the girls' daily lives, and his own, had persisted. Nothing was the same, of course. Marie Marie had not yet missed a lesson, and Eva seemed to be meeting the minimum requirements of her own therapy. They were both doing well enough in school, though without the swim team, the hours seemed to stretch for Eva, who used to spend at least two hours a day at the university natatorium, twice that on weekends. Barton had taken to making dinner in the mornings before going to work to free up the evenings, and they'd started new rituals, their threesome. Every afternoon that Eva didn't have physical therapy and Marie didn't have piano, they packed tote bags and drove to the beach on Key Biscayne. The girls each set up a leisure station on the sand, headphones and bottles of water and magazines and books and snacks and sunscreen, umbrella shadows over their faces. Inside the house, his girls were so expansive, so loud, so much, that it felt unjust, not to mention nerve-wracking, to contain them. But in the open air at the edge of an ocean, they had plenty of room. Even when they snarked at each other, even when Eva's voice went gristly and Marie's body bristled, the wind and the waves overwhelmed their too muchness and it dispersed. Sometimes the girls balked when they came in the door to find Barton wearing his ball cap and tossing sunscreen into a tote bag. They were tired. They wanted to be alone. Enough with the damn beach. But he knew what would happen with these two savages locked in their cell. He stood firm and they gave in. Every so often on those long afternoons while he lounged in his low mesh chair, his large feet buried in the hot sand, Barton would catch sight of the cups of their flesh at their armpits and the shell-like scoops of their heels and the smooth slabs of their thighs, and he would feel utterly defeated by them. By them and by glory and all the women he'd ever known. This feeling of defeat a cousin of the despair that stalked him from a distance, was new to him. Feeling anything so desperately was new, in fact. Maybe it had been Glory who had kept his head pegged to his spine all those years. Maybe without her, he would lose his bearings entirely. 